You can open it to the book of Revelation. We'll be in chapter 8 tonight. Uh, if you are wanting any of the handouts we've had, we've got the different Revelation timelines, so the four views over here. We've also got the structure of Revelation that we're using as our roadmap to get through uh, the book. Tonight, we are looking at the first four of the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets come to us in the third of seven cycles in the book of Revelation. In cycle one, we got a picture of the history uh, between the first and second coming of Christ by seeing Jesus standing in the midst of his churches, in control of them, governing them. They're suffering, they're dealing with plenty of issues and problems, but if they are repentant and they are enduring, they will receive great reward from him as his faithful servants when he returns. In cycle two, we saw a picture of the history between the first and second coming and the seals. The seals showed us what life would be like until Jesus comes back. In the first four seals, we saw conquest and war and famine and death would be in the world until Jesus returns. Uh, We saw in the fifth seal, believers would lose their lives, would be persecuted and martyred until Jesus returns. But in the end, he will return and God will make things right when his son comes back and saves his people forever and judges his enemies and vanquishes them for good. Now we are in cycle three, and we have seen the prayers of the saints rise up to God two weeks ago, and God is responding in judgment, in the judgment of the trumpets. And we're just going to look at the first four trumpets tonight, and then we'll take a nice long break before we get to the fifth one uh, on January 4th. So uh, Revelation 8, and I'll read for us starting in verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. All the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. I think there's three observations we can make from this text tonight. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first four trumpets show us that judgment is near all the time. Okay, the first four trumpets show us that judgment is near. That's the point. You can add the all the time if you want, because it is. If you're wondering why we're only dealing with four trumpets tonight, it's not just for the sake of time. It's because these four trumpets go together, and then the other three that come after it are different. And it's a lot like the seals. Back in chapter 6, the first four seals were very different from seals 5, 6, and 7. Because one of the four living creatures uh, would summon a rider on a horse. And a white horse came representing conquest. And a red horse came representing the bloodshed and war. And a black horse came representing famine. And a pale horse came representing death. When the fifth seal is opened, 
uh, you have the martyrs crying out for justice, but there's no horse, there's no living creature summoning a rider. And so clearly the first four are different from five, six, and seven. Here in chapter eight, we'll see a similar thing. The first four trumpets all occur, and then there is a break, and that break comes in verse 13 when you have an eagle flying overhead, which is like something straight out of like a J.R.R. Tolkien uh, uh, novel, right? And so this eagle flies overhead and is crying out with a loud voice, woe, 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 as if to say, hey, the worst is yet to come. Then you go forward with the blowing of the fifth trumpet, and just like with the seals, the fifth feels different. I want to be clear from the outset that when we look at these first four trumpets, we're not looking at the end times, not yet. We are looking at the end times in the sense that if you live in between Jesus' ascension into heaven and Jesus' return to earth, you're living in the end times, the last times in the eyes of the New Testament writers. But we're not talking about the return of Jesus just yet when we get to the first four trumpets. Just like the first four seals showed us how things would be in the world until Jesus comes back, it would be filled with conquest and war and famine and death, the four trumpets show us how God is judging the world right now in history, he's done it in the past, he's doing it in the present, and he'll do it in the future until his son returns in the ultimate judgment. But even though final judgment has not yet come, it's not as if God is not on his throne judging. He is already in his wisdom judging the world through the events that occur in the world. And we know this from Psalm 105 verse 7 which says, He is the Lord our God. And then listen, it says, His judgments are in all the earth. All the time. He's always judging. As we covered a couple weeks ago, the trumpet was used in multiple ways in the Old Testament. It gathered people together. It was a sound of victory. But the trumpet is also a sound of imminent judgment. It was an alarm. In Joel 2 verse 1, Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near." In fact, if you keep reading in that passage, Joel talks about these locusts, and we're going to see when we do uh, get back together on January 4th, you're going to see demons coming out of the abyss like locusts, just like Joel talks about in Joel 2. So if you, had any, if you were concerned at all, am I still going to want to come back on January 4th? Like the dangling carrot for you to come back after the holidays are demon locusts rising out of the abyss of hell, all right? So if that doesn't bring you back on January 4th, I don't know what will. Um, these trumpets, we have a scene established for us with them in the beginning of the chapter, don't we? There's seven angels, and they have seven trumpets. And they stand before God. And we had this other angel who enters the scene at the altar with a golden censer and offers incense with the prayers of the saints. And the prayers of the saints rise up. They are accepted by the Father, right, by the blood of Jesus. And then God is responding to the prayers of the saints when the eighth angel takes the censer, it's filled with fire, throws it down in the earth. This is a sign of judgment. Fire often represents judgment in the Bible and certainly in the book of Revelation. And storm elements regularly accompany judgment in the book of Revelation. So judgment is coming on the earth. But it's not just in the second coming. It's already happening now. 
God is judging now. He is at work now. And the history of God's judgment in the world and God's activity in the world right now and God's activity until Jesus comes back is explained through the images of these first four angels blowing these trumpets. So in verse 6, the angels are ready to blow. It's time for us to learn about God's fair and wise judgments in the nations that are building toward the final judgment in the return of his son. When we look at each of the first four trumpets, each trumpet brings about an event of judgment that we are able to relate back to God's judgment on Egypt in Exodus. Okay, so uh, we are meant to do that. The Holy Spirit means for us to see the words here in Revelation 8 and go, oh yeah, Exodus 7 through 9, right? That's, that's what he wants us to do. That being said, I don't think we should lose our heads about what all the symbols might mean and, and the significance of the fractions, okay? I think people get really excited about these things and they make charts and stuff, but I think we can calm down and just see that as we look at the judgment that's going to unfold through these first four judgments, all of creation is affected. We're meant to see that. Land, sea, springs, rivers, heavens. All of creation is affected by God's judgments, okay? Um, and yet, there are these fractions, to let us know the judgment is limited. It's not full judgment yet, okay? So that's what we need to know. When we walk away from the first four trumpets, we don't need to, to, to lose our mind about like, well, what does this mean for Russia and the Ukraine, okay? We don't need to lose our minds about that. We just need to understand that right now in history, God is judging the nations, but those judgments are limited until his son returns and there will be full judgment. That being said... I think the results of the judgments can lead us to make some conclusions about what we'll see happening in the world when God judges the nations. I think that we also can um, look at the words that are being used and we can see some of this language with the hail, the fire, the darkness, all this stuff. And, and we can kind of get to the heart of, of what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about each one of these trumpets. So let's not get lost in the weeds, but we also don't need to be afraid to poke around a bit and speculate just a little bit. Does that make sense? Like, don't lose your head, but have a little bit of responsible fun, okay? So we start with the first trumpet in verse 7. Hail and fire mixed with blood is thrown on the earth. Very cheerful. A third of the earth is burnt up. A third of the trees are burnt up. All the green grass is burnt up. This is meant to conjure up images of the hail in Exodus 9. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such had never been in all of the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. The only thing missing in Exodus 9 is the blood right? Because we get the hail and the fire in Exodus 9, but we don't have the blood. But if you read from Ezekiel 38, it's very clear that we are meant to not only think of, of Exodus 9, but also Ezekiel 38. Because in Ezekiel 38 verse 22, Ezekiel says, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones and fire and sulfur. So there's your blood and your hail and your fire all in one passage. When you put Exodus 9 and you put Ezekiel 38 together, 
what we should know is we're dealing with judgment. Again, we don't need to try to kill ourselves to think about specific instances. That's not the point. Instead, John is showing us that until Jesus returns and the final judgment comes, God will judge the earth in a limited way for its sin. And this judgment will impact the earth's resources. A third of the land is gone, a third of the trees are gone, all the green grass is gone. Imagine the agricultural calamity of something like that. Not just the agricultural calamity, but the economic calamity of something like that, the ecological calamity of something like that. All the green grass is gone. That's a sign of famine. But we're not talking about the apocalypse yet. We know that because the judgments impact a third of the earth and a third of the trees. Okay, Judgment is restrained because God is merciful. The second trumpet is blown in verse 8, and its impact carries into verse 9. When the second trumpet is blown, there's something like a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood. This should draw our minds to Exodus 7. Moses, Moses, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood. The mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea sounds a lot like a volcano right? That's what it makes us think of. And about 11 years before John would have written the book of Revelation, the ancient Near Eastern world was thrown into absolute terror and fear when Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD. It buried Pompeii in ash. It completely ruined the uh, environmental life in the Bay of Naples. And so it is very likely that that event is what John has in mind as he is uh, writing here, and that that is an example then of God's judgment in the world. Vesuvius doesn't happen, and God is in heaven going, I didn't see that coming. What do I do with this? Right? Or, "Eh, I'm just feeling like blowing up a volcano today. No real purpose behind it. Just going to and you see what happens with this volcano, you know? That's not our God. It's, he, he, he is wise. He has everything planned out from the foundations of the world, and he has purposes in everything that he does. So when Vesuvius erupts in 79 AD, that is part of God's judgment in the nations. Do we understand all of his purposes in that? No. Do we understand why he was judging? No. We understand in general it's because of sin, right? But God is judging in the nations, and things like Vesuvius happen when God is issuing his fair and wise judgments. The first trumpet was supposed to make us think of the distress that comes about as a result of God's judgment on the earth. Then the second trumpet points us toward the impact of God's judgment on the seas. A third of the sea life dies. A third of the ships are destroyed. The fish are all being killed, right? A third of the fish uh, die. Again, What would be not only the ecological impact of that, but the economic impact of that when you have an ancient world that relies so heavily on the fishing industry? When the ships are destroyed, that means that a third of the trade industry is just gone, right? A third of the economy has just disappeared. These are the sort of things that happen when God is judging in the nations, right? The, the environment is affected, the economy is uh, impacted, and uh, the, e- even you know, trade systems uh, start to, to fall apart, right? All of these sorts of things are impacted by God's judgment. So we've seen his judgment on the earth, the ocean. The third judgment sees impact on the river and the springs in verses 10 and 11. 
A great star falls from heaven when the trumpet is blown, blazing like a torch, and it falls on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The star's name is Wormwood. It poisons a third of the water and kills those who drink it. This should draw our attention to Exodus 7, verse 21, where it says, And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stink, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. In Jeremiah 9, we get another passage that seems to have some influence on uh, the third trumpet here, where Jeremiah says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. So part of God's judgment on the people would be uh, the, the ruin of their water. Wormwood is an intensely bitter herb. It's the name of the star that, that falls in the water. It's, it's an intensely bitter herb. For it to kill you, you would have to eat a ton of it. Okay, uh, But here it is just symbolic for poison. As a result of the judgment of God, the drinking waters, the most basic human need, it's poisoned. And many who drink from that water die. We're probably meant here to think of the ancient military strategy of besieging a city and cutting off the drinking supply. Um, we, we are meant to, to, to think of that and understand that when that happens, again, just like Vesuvius erupting, this is not happening apart from God's activity in the world, that he is behind it, right? Um, as modern readers, we might think of pollution ruining drinking water, but that's not where the first century mind would have gone. They would have thought of water being ruined by a military conquest for the purpose of dehydrating a population until they surrender. The poison of wormwood probably just represents in general the violence of humanity, right? Because it's the violence of humanity that would lead one nation to besiege another. It's the violence of humanity that leads nations to come in and take the most basic humanitarian needs away from people so that they will suffer and have to surrender. And we know that when the Assyrians came on the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians came on the southern kingdom of, uh, of Judah in 586 B.C., uh, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, when the Romans came uh, in on Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that God, in those instances, used the sinful violence of men to judge nations for their own sin. Right? God is not the one who is, um, he is not causing the sin, but he is using the sin of the, uh, the, these violent, depraved nations in order to judge the world. And when that sort of thing is happening in the world, there's conquests and there's war like that, it brings about a lack of the basic things that humans need. But once again, it's limited to a third of the rivers, a third of the springs. We know we're, we're, we're still not dealing with final judgment here. Then finally, we get the fourth trumpet. And now we see every sphere of creation is impacted, right? Trumpet one is the earth. Trumpet two is the sea. Trumpet three is the rivers and springs. And trumpet four, we have the heavens that are affected. A third of the sun in verse 12, and the moon and the stars are uh, darkened. This is not literal, but just imagine what it would be like if it was. The sort of darkness that it would produce. It, it's uh, meant to, to recall 
uh, the scene in Exodus 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. We also saw darkness on the landscape this past Sunday in Luke when God pours out his judgment on his son for our sin, right? And as a sign that that judgment had come down on the sun, Luke records that it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And here, this darkness is letting us know that God's judgment is coming upon the earth. But again, it's limited. It's only a third of the lights in the heavens that are affected. You put all this together and we see God's fair and wise judgments are being poured out throughout history. All spheres of human existence are touched as a result of this judgment. The judgments are limited. The fractions make that clear. But they impact every level of creation to the point that they can't be denied. And they're building to the final judgment that we will see in uh, January. And this promise of judgment would have been so important for these Asia Minor Christians and these seven churches who first heard this letter read in their congregations because they were suffering under the fist of oppressive Rome. It would have been a comfort that, uh, to them to know that, yes, Jesus is going to come back and he will throw down Caesar's throne and that's going to be great. But even now, God is judging Rome. Even now, God is judging the leaders of the world, the nations of the world, the activity that is going on in the world. And when we look into this world and we see the sinful kingdoms of the world short on bread, short on land, short on fish, short on trade, short on water, even light, then we should know that God is in the heavens and he is wisely judging the nations on his perfect scales. There's nothing going unseen and there's nothing going unpunished, whether it's in this life or the next. And so that would have been a great comfort to that suffering church to know that God is at work in his judgment. So that's observation number one. First four trumpets show us that judgment's always near because God's always judging. He, he's never stopping that work until the final judgment comes. Second observation for tonight, the first four trumpets show us that the world is not secure. These four trumpets show us this world that we live in, it is not secure. It is not safe. All around us, we see people who are putting their hope in this world that we live in. They're putting their hope in the created things of this world. They're hoping in the earth. They're hoping in the sea. They're hoping in the uh, rivers and the springs. They're hoping in the heavens. They're hoping in creation. They're hoping in man-made idols. As the created order is subject to God's judgment on every level, earth, sea, rivers, and sky, that which the people have put their hope in is failing. The idol of creation that they have bowed down to is crumbling under the weight of God's judgment. This is happening around us even as we speak. When you see Vesuvius erupt, right, we know the world is not safe. Or when we see something like 9-11 happen, we know the world is not safe. When we see something like what happened in Charlottesville just a couple of days ago, we know the world is not safe. This world is like a building that has its foundation on a fault line. And the earth is trembling. 
And we see the lack of security in the world in two main areas in these judgments. I mentioned them already, but I want to talk through them uh, quickly here. First of all, it's the economic ramifications on the earth. And we see this especially in the first two trumpets, right? First trumpet's blown, third of the earth and the trees are burnt up, all the green grass is burnt up. That's an agricultural nightmare. It would have massive economic consequences. The second trumpet brings about judgment on the sea. Third of the fish, third of the trade ships are destroyed. Again, economic nightmare. It's like the housing bubble collapsing in, in, in 2008, you know, and uh, except much, much worse. Total nightmare in terms of economic profit. And what that reminds us of is that we cannot put our hope in money and stocks and banks and markets. We can't. Because inevitably, when God's active judgment in the nations impacts those things, when the fish die and the ships are destroyed, and there's no good soil for growing crops, those things are going to fail. And if our hope is in economic flourishing and our joy is tied to the health of local and national and global markets, then our hope will fail when those economies falter under the weight of God's judgment in the nations. So if you believe that God judges, you should never put your hope in the faulty markets and money of this world. As we looked at the verses, we also saw the ecological impact, right? God's judgment comes down on the earth, the ocean, the rivers, and the heavens. The hail, fire, and blood on the land after the first trumpet burn up a third of the earth. Second trumpet ruins a third of the sea. The burning star falling after the blowing of the third trumpet destroys a third of the rivers and springs. And the darkness that comes with the fourth trumpet takes a third of the light coming from the sun, moon, and stars. So as God is judging the nations in history, the earth itself is feeling the effects of that judgment. It's part of the reason that Paul says creation itself is groaning for redemption in Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That's the judgments we're talking about here, right? This earth has been subjected to the judgment of God. It didn't sign up for it, right? But it is being subjected to it. But because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's like the fallen world is crying out to be burnt up that the new earth would be made and this world would be replaced. It knows its time is limited and it's going, just end it! Just end it! When the tectonic plates crash into one another, it's saying just end it. When the ocean is roaring, it's saying just end it, right? The the creation is groaning for the return of Jesus. You take that view and you put it up against the view we see in the world. Where now, and and I've talked about this, so I don't mean to like rerun over it, but I want to make sure we understand that as Americans, the air that the people around us are breathing, it is not a biblical air where you look at creation and go, this is all subject to the judgment of God. It's groaning out for redemption. He's going to come back and there's going to be a new earth. No, it's, it's this air where we are now taking God out of the equation and we are worshiping the creation. Well, I'm just not sure if the universe wants me to do that. You ever hear people say stuff like that, right? What are they doing? They're taking governing authority away from the creator and they're trying to give it to the creation. And in light of what we're seeing in this passage, that is utter foolishness. Because this creation is subject to the judgment of God and to attribute his authority to it, it makes no sense. 
It's a major offense to the actual judge, the triune God who has not only made the universe, but who sits in judgment over it. The judgments of God, limited as they may be in this world, remind us we cannot put our hope in creation. We look to the earth to provide things for us, like food and drinking water, but ultimately it provides those things only as much as God ordains it. And so he is the provider. He is the one that we look to. All authority is attributed to him and to him alone. Understanding this, this, understanding that God is at work in the world, that everything we see unfolding has a divine purpose behind it, changes the way that we view history. It changes the way that we view current events. It changes the way that we look at the future. We do not see this world as being filled with random acts of chaos. We do not see the events that take place in the world as just being happenstance. Some tragic, some happy, a little bit in between. No, we see the events taking place within the governing of God, and that includes his judgment. And what that should do is give us the ability to not only avoid panicking, but to be obedient, even as creation around us is groaning. And this sets us apart from uh, people that we're, we're living with on this earth that don't know the Lord, right? The people who dwell on the earth. And I'll illustrate it this way. I've had the opportunity over the last few months to spend time with some unbelieving friends of mine that uh, I knew in college and I keep up with. Some I keep up with daily, some I you know, see every few years. And um, on multiple occasions, I've sat down with people I know that don't know Jesus, okay? And they're really worried about global warming, okay? Extremely worried about it. Um, and, and I know we, we, we might like laugh at some of this. Some of, and some of you, you might go, no, no, I'm worried about it too, man. I'm really worried about it, okay? And some of you, you're going to laugh at some of the stuff I'm about to say, okay? Try to restrain yourself from laughing if you can, because I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the, the, the story, the picture I'm about to paint for you, people that I know and love believe this. They're staking their future on this narrative, and they're letting it affect their actions now. So here's some stuff about a global climate apocalypse I pulled from the Guardian newspaper. Okay, so the Guardian's big newspaper, global newspaper recognized worldwide. This isn't like some like weirdo fringe, some guy in the basement in Australia saying the world's going to end in 30 years. The Guardian, okay, Guardian says by the 2050s, the American South will be unlivable. So where do you live? You're not going to be able to live, like Birmingham, Alabama, you're not going to be able to live there. It's going to be too hot. Within three decades, five billion people on this earth are not going to have access to adequate drinking water. By 20, the 2050s, the continental United States will see wildfires spreading across the entire continental United States. Kansas, wildfires. Virginia, wildfires. So that's just like three scary predictions I pulled from their website. I'm not here to make fun, Okay. What's broken my heart is hearing my friends say, not only do I believe that, but I won't bring kids into this world because of it. Do you know how satanic that is? That is straight from the pit of hell. One of the first commandments we get is what? Be fruitful and multiply. And this narrative is being used to keep people from doing the very thing that God has said to humanity to do, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And they're going, nope, I can't bring kids into this world. See, they're looking at creation, and they're realizing it's not stable. But they don't have hope in Jesus. They have hope in the creation that's not stable. So their hope is failing, and they're saying despairing things like, I can't have kids in a world like this. It's heartbreaking. 
But as believers, whatever may or may not happen with the climate doesn't impact our hope because we're not putting our hope in creation. We see this world groaning for redemption. We see the nations at war. We see economies collapsing. We don't shrink back in terror. We marvel at it. We go, what's he doing now? What's he up to now? How does, how does what we see going on in the world tie into how he is bringing history to a conclusion with the return of his glorious son? And more than that, we're able to actually be obedient as we wait on him because we have counted him as our refuge. Not this world, not this, this unsecure world. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So we don't look at God's judgments in history and retreat and say, well, we can't have kids and we got to panic and let's build bomb shelters and let's all just go underground and disappear. You know, send in our mail-in vote every four years or whatever, right? No. We do what he told us to do. We're not, people, the earth's going to set on fire. We know. He told us. Yes, we know. It's going to set on fire. It's not because of the reasons you think it is, but it's going to be set on fire. But we're going to keep filling it up and multiplying until he comes back. Because that's what he told us to do. And we're going to keep fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations through the ministry of the local church. Because that's what he told us to do. And if you're like, but brother, I'm worried about the environment. Well, then plant a tree. Seriously. I'm serious. Like, plant a tree, recycle. You know what I'm saying? Adopt a pet. Do what you need to do uh, about that. My friend Chuck Hedden, you know, one of our church members, I love Chuck. Chuck says, you don't go to the bathroom in your living room, right? We should take care of this earth. We absolutely should be good stewards of the, this earth um, as believers in Jesus Christ, okay? But we don't put our hope in it. So plant a tree, but don't put your hope in that tree, all right? Adopt an animal, don't put your hope in that animal. Do what you want to do for the environment. Recycle, pick up trash, but at the end of the day, the most important thing that you're going to do is to be a faithful, obedient believer who does not run from what you see going on out there in the world. Instead, you run into it. And you say, I've got a message for you. And um, everything that you're seeing and all this sin and all this destruction and everything you're worried about, it's real. But there's a very real solution. His name is Jesus. Put your trust in him. He came once lived a sinless life and died for you and rose again and he's going to come again and you don't want to be on the wrong side of him. And if you put your trust in him, life may not be easy, but it will be sweet and joyful. That's our message. So let's keep going. Final observation. The four trumpets have uh, shown us God's judgment is near. The world is not secure. Lastly, the four trumpets show us God is patient. He's patient. Right? A third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers and springs, a third of the lights in the sky. A third, a third, a third, a third. The judgment is not whole. It is not in totality. It's limited. And this is how God's judgment is going to be until his son returns. It's limited. You say, well, why is this the case? How come he doesn't just pour out his, his, his anger on the nations now? How come he does not send his son to tread the winepress of the wrath of the fury of God tomorrow? Why not? Well, it's not because God is slack because, uh, uh, concerning his promises. That's, that's not why he hasn't brought full judgment yet. It's because he's long-suffering and he's patient. Not slack, patient. 
And this is what Peter says in his epistle in 2 Peter 3. He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So in the last days... What's going to happen in this time in between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, people are going to laugh at God. Oh, he's not going to judge. Everything's just pretty much going on like it always has. And they'll say God is slack concerning his promises, right? He, he either doesn't have the ability to follow through on them or he doesn't care enough to follow through on them. But Peter says this going on. He says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Remember I said earlier the world's going to burn? That's what Peter's saying. God has built his judgment into the earth. Like we're sitting on a fireball, like a big atomic fireball. You know what I mean? It's going to burn. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's not slack. This world will be consumed by fire in his judgment. On the final day, that will happen, and that final day is coming. And we know it's coming because in verse 13, this eagle flies overhead, saying, woe, woe, woe. The eagle could be a vulture because the Greek word uh, that translates into eagle also can translate into vulture. So the eagle could be a vulture. I don't think it is, though, because uh, it translates into eagle later on in Revelation. It seems pretty certain that it's an eagle there. So I I think that it's an eagle here. And it's a little weird that it's an eagle going, whoa, 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 because eagles usually represent God's care and provision and love for his people in the scriptures. But I think that we have to look to the law. Because though eagles were a representation of God's comfort to his people, eagles were also unclean. They couldn't eat them. So I think that is what is most important here. This unclean eagle flies over. This lawless bird, right? Pronouncing three woes upon the earth. For something to be elevated to the third degree is the highest level of emphasis that a Jewish person could give when writing. And so when you see woe, 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 It's as if the eagle is saying, this judgment you've seen has been bad, but you have no clue as to what is about to come. It is going to be so, so much worse. As bad as things are with the blowing of these four trumpets, it's going to get a lot worse with the next three. Because with each blowing of the next three, each one of those three woes is unleashed. Fifth trumpet blows, there's woe number one. Sixth trumpet blows, there's woe number two. Seventh trumpet blows, there's woe number three. So this eagle is a reminder to us that God is not slack concerning his judgments. Woe, woe, woe. The judgment, the final judgment is coming. So why hasn't he brought it about yet? Well, according to what we just read from Peter, it is because he is patient. And he's patient toward his people. And he's not going to let a single one of his people perish. Not a single one of those names written in the book of life is going to get away from him. 
He's going to bring every single one of those names to repentance. He's going to gather them from the four winds and his son will return to judge the world in righteousness. And it might seem like it's taken forever. But that's just to you. Because God does not feel the constraints of time like you do, right? A day to him is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. His plan is perfect. His patience is merciful. And he will return in the future. And on that day there will be full judgment, but keep in mind there will also be full redemption. Judgment for the world, but full redemption for the church. If you are hearing this tonight, whether you're in this room or you're watching on the live stream tonight, whether you're watching this like presently with us tonight at 6.30 or you're watching it like next week, you're watching it three years from now. If you don't know Jesus, this passage should be like an alarm clock that's ringing, right? Just ring, ring. Right? Remember when we used to have those alarm clocks before you could choose the sounds, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's this, this passage is like an alarm clock going off. Judgment is near. The world's not secure. God's patient, but whoa, whoa, whoa is coming. Right? It, it's, it's this alarm going off saying, hey, if you think this world is bad, wait till His full wrath is unleashed. It's going to be a woeful day for anybody who's not on the side of God. Anybody who's not put their faith in the Son of God in His life and His death and His resurrection, it's going to be a woeful, woeful, woeful day. So we should repent now. While God's patience is giving us the opportunity, we should trust in His Son now. The day of judgment's coming, but today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your judgments in the world. I thank you that this place is not unchecked. How terrible it would be, God, if you just let it go like a clock until, you, until your son returns. If you withheld all judgment until the end. How terrible of a place this would be. But God, by your abundant mercy, you are limiting that judgment. You are holding judgment back. And... Um, Father, I just want to thank you for your mercy. I pray, God, for your mercy upon the nation that we live in. Our, our nation needs your mercy, God. We're not your chosen people. We're not Israel. We are subject to your judgments just like every other nation on this earth. And Father God, we've got a mess on our hands because we have forsaken your laws and your commandments and your way and your will. We've got no time for you. We have written you out of the story of our country. So yes, Lord, I know your judgments in our nation, and we are thankful that you are merciful toward America because it could be worse, just as you are merciful toward the other nations of the earth. And I pray, God, that that mercy would draw people to repentance, and I pray that this local church can be a part of that. There's people right here in our neighborhood, God, and, and, and you are patient toward them, not because you're slack, God, but because you're merciful. You are patient toward them. And I pray, God, that your patience would draw them to repentance, your kindness would draw them to repentance, and we could be a part of showing them that kindness, directing their attention to that kindness, helping them see just how merciful you have been, and that that would cause them to desire salvation, God, to cry out like creation for redemption. And so, Father, I pray that your mercy would lead souls to you and and yet, God, though we are thankful for the limited judgment, we still cry out Maranatha. We still see football players with their 
whole future in front of them and students with their whole future in front of them getting shot and and, and we see um, the opioid crisis and all the senselessness that we've got, God, all around us. And it causes us to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. So on one hand, we're thankful for the limited judgment and we're going to be here ministering, God, and, and shouting from the rooftops that you are merciful until your son returns. On the other hand, we are not ashamed to pray for him to come back. Come Lord Jesus, come. So we pray both, Lord. We thank you for your glorious plan Help us not to grow tired of it, to want to be a part of it, and to give you praise because of it. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.